Just before I went off to college, I met with the pastor of my church in Rochester, Michigan. I had known him for some time. He knew a little bit about my intentions and my contemplation by his model of a preaching life, about what it might mean to be a pastor. And so as I met with him before I went off to school to enter and explore the world, he sat in his office and he talked to me about his life and what it meant, and I asked him questions, and he walked over to his bookshelf, and he pulled off a book that had been beautifully kept and preserved, the dust cover still intact, though clearly the book had been read. And he brought it over and he handed it to me and he said, take this with you. Read it when you're ready. The title of the book was How Shall They Hear Without a Preacher? Quoting a verse from the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. The book was a biography of a preacher, Ernest Fremont Tittle, who was for many years the senior pastor of First United Methodist Church in Evanston, Illinois, where I was going off to college. He gave me this book not to convince me of anything, but to give me a model of a preacher's life. How shall they hear without a preacher? That passage from the book of Romans has been translated in a number of ways. The version in your bulletin and in your pews, the new revised standard, takes that term preacher and says proclamation. How shall they hear if no one proclaims the word? Several other translations preserve that word from the King James preacher. So for reasons I'm going to tell you in just a minute, I'm going to read to you this morning the translation from the New Jerusalem Bible, a contemporary translation that preserves that word preacher and preaching. May God bless to us the reading of this scripture from Romans chapter 10. What does it say then? The word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, the faith that we preach. That if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe with your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. It is by believing with the heart that you are justified and by making the declaration with your lips that you are saved. When scripture says, no one who relies on this will be brought to disgrace, it makes no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is the Lord of all, and the Lord's generosity is offered to all who appeal to him. And for all who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. How then are they to call on him if they have not come to believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they had nev have never heard of him? And how will they hear of him unless there is a preacher for them? And how will there be preachers if they are not sent? As scripture says, 
How beautiful are the feet of the messenger of good news. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. I told Mike Hegeman earlier today that if anyone wonders, he can say to them that this morning's sermon is his fault. <laughs> when I was in Georgia visiting my mother last month, Dr. Hegeman and Reverend Lawson had this pulpit well in hand. Mike, for his part, preached a couple of sermons about preaching. I was eager to watch them, thinking that they might set me straight. If you weren't here those mornings or haven't had a chance to log on and watch or listen to those sermons, I do recommend them to you. Mike took what I thought was an interesting tack as he beautifully turned our heads from human sermons to God's sermon. God's message that scripture and all creation shouts, of which human words, even in a sermon, are at best distorted echoes. He brought to mind, my mind, that passage that I just read from Romans and the story I told you about that beautiful gift of that book with verse 14 as its title. So I thought that I would offer a little footnote to Mike's series and take a turn by taking us back to the human side of all this, the all-too-human side of the craft that the church calls preaching in the form of what we call a sermon. Now, I've never preached about preaching before, so maybe it's about time. This is my little yes and to Mike's beautiful words. How shall they hear without a preacher? The Apostle Paul asks. So let me begin with a confession. Many of you know that I spent a few years as a professor of preaching. One of the open secrets among teachers of preaching that everyone knew but no one was willing to talk about at professional conferences was that none of us had any idea how to teach preaching. We didn't want anyone to know because we didn't want to lose our jobs. Mike might agree from his time doing the same thing. Now, we could give a few ideas to students, maybe. We could help students think critically about what they do, maybe. And we could ask some questions. But we couldn't really teach it. Now, we knew it if a student hadn't had it or didn't. We could tell if a student might have the potential to perfect it over the years ahead or might not. But we couldn't really, in the end, even describe what it was. For there is no one form that sermons are supposed to fit. Spirit-filled preaching takes many forms. And to think about this very, very ancient craft, 
is to chase something that we will never catch. Because when you think about it, this thing that's happening right now is the most common act of live communication that there is. All over the world, every week, women and men standing in pulpits or on stages in a worship service after a passage of scripture is read, speaking, preaching in the form of a sermon. There are sermons on screens in megachurches. There are sermons whispered from robed priests in cathedral pulpits. Sermons offered in formal and informal liturgies, black church, European church, Latin American, Pentecostal church, urban, rural, Catholic, Orthodox, all kinds of Protestants. Add to that synagogues and mosques, and you got a whole lot of preaching going on. And a whole lot of listening, too. And all of it trying to do something with and for God. But as far as I'm concerned, the humbling miracle is less, that, less about all of that preaching that's going on than that you all actually come. And that God tolerates all of this silliness. And that God might even bless it. Because the blessedness of this craft is not in individual sermons. It's in the fact that preaching happens at all. And you, as hearers, are part of the miracle. So the question comes, what is this thing called a sermon? Well, we inherit the idea from Jewish practice during the time of Jesus and before when a teacher, a rabbi would comment on a passage of scripture that is read, was read from a scroll that was opened when the people gathered to pray. The assumption behind that is one that we still share, that scripture cannot speak for itself. Scripture needs to be read with others. It needs to be interpreted it needs to be made meaningful for people who want to learn from it. It comes alive among us through good questions, hard work, and comment. God's word is not a thing that just sits there. God's word is an event. It's tied to tradition. It's alive in a moment. It, is, it comes in a broken human voice that is still hopefully somewhat obedient to something transcendent. And that's quite a wager, don't you think? Because... Because human words are so prone to error, we mess it up. So God picked a, a pretty peculiar way to come alive to God's people. And so another question comes, what is a sermon supposed to do? Oh boy, things get even messier now. The official line a sermon interprets scripture in the context of worship. But for what purpose? The church has surely said more than that, hasn't it? Well, yes, 
it has said more than that and in more than one way. For Roman Catholics, a sermon is the wisdom of the magisterium, who are the folks who are trained and authorized to interpret scripture. It is their wisdom given to the people as they prepare for the Mass. For Anglicans, the sermon unifies the prayers and scriptures and songs that have been appointed for the day. For Lutherans, it identifies the word of grace and freedom in scripture. For Baptists, it calls people to a choice before a transcendent word. For Methodists, it wins people to Christ through connecting scripture to their hearts. For Presbyterians, it informs Christian conscience through learned interpretation of the text. So, Presbyterians have tended to emphasize the teaching role of the preacher, sometimes to the loss of those other roles. Anon, anon, your head is swirling, I'm sure, as it should be. For truth be told, in actual practice, all these different views get all jumbled up, even if they still have some influence. And those are just the official views. What about you hearers? What do you all assume about preaching? Well, over the years that I've been doing this, not many, but a few, here are some of the things that I've heard. Wes, you've told me, a sermon should interpret scripture and nothing else. Or, a sermon should give advice about life and not get lost in scripture. A sermon should offer the blessed assurance, tried and true, timeless and unchanging, and not get messed up with contemporary issues. A sermon should be relevant to the moment, as if the preacher has the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. If it doesn't do that, it's useless. A sermon should lift us up beyond our lives. A sermon should be down to earth and practical. A sermon needs a bottom line, a takeaway, and a list of things that I can take notes on. A sermon isn't a lecture or a self-help talk. Keep it theological. Let me apply it to myself. A sermon is good news and should always have an inspiring call to faith and decision to be made. A sermon should inform and not manipulate or demand. And it should never be about the preacher. Avoid personal stories and never say I. No, 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 we want personal stories. That's what it's all about. A sermon should always begin with scripture to show the Bible's authority. A sermon should always begin with a human personal story, even some humor, and let scripture come in later. A sermon should make me feel good. A sermon should disturb me and even anger me if that's what I need. A sermon should be entertaining and keep my attention. A sermon isn't entertainment. Give me some work to do. A sermon should convict us of our sin and call us to change. A sermon should reassure us that we are loved just as we are. Just tell the story. Forget the story. 
Just tell the meaning. Comfort the afflicted. Afflict the comfortable. You get the point. Every single sermon fails someone. And we'd all do well to simply widen our view a bit. Preachers, too. And so here's another question that nags, of course. And that is this. What then makes a good sermon and what makes a bad sermon? Don't rush to answer that. Here's another tough one. One needs a little humility for that question. The same preacher who gave me that book I told you about inspired nearly two dozen folks to become preachers over the years of his ministry. And yet I remember hearing a dear and intelligent adult, very committed to the church, say to my mother one afternoon when I was a youth, I've never understood a single word that man has ever said. And I remember when one of you was genuinely kind enough to invite me to lunch after I'd been here a couple of years. At that lunch, you were also genuinely kind enough to tell me that my Christmas Eve sermon a few weeks before really stunk. And that you'd never bring a friend to hear that kind of preaching. You told me how I could do better, not just at Christmas, but every week. And then, by the way, I love the person who told me that. But, and then, that very same afternoon, the same afternoon, another one of you called me without any knowledge of my lunch. And in the course of a conversation about other things, you told me that you and your family were still talking about my Christmas Eve sermon and how much you and the visitors you brought with me that night loved the sermon and were moved by it and touched by it. And I remember another one of you who was courageous enough to tell me that my sermons were too abstract, over the heads of hearers, too academic, and not very useful. And the same week, you can fill in the blank, I was at CVS picking up something or another, and a young man in his 30s saw me, and he walked over and he said, you're Dr. Avram. I said, yes. I've been coming to Pinnacle for a while, he said, but I've never introduced myself. I want to let you know how much I appreciate your sermons. They are so practical, so down to earth. Every Sunday, I take away something that I can think about for the week. Go figure. Okay. Every preacher has experienced some form of what I just described. And you probably wouldn't blame the preacher for opting for one set of those comments over the others. But we'd probably be wrong to do that. And we'd probably also be wrong to assume that the church, that the, excuse me, that the truth is somewhere in between. For the truth is that all of those responses are probably right. For this is a subjective work we do together here. It is a holy word that is incarnated in human flesh. The flesh of imperfect preachers and unfinished hearers. 
and yet God can still use it. A sermon can be good and bad at the same time. And they're rarely more than just rough drafts of truth. So does that mean that there are no standards and nothing to learn and that anything goes from the pulpit? Not at all. It just means that this is a humbling work that requires seriousness and openness and learning from everyone, speakers and hearers alike. Can't say that enough. The point is not to not have preferences or opinions, but to not assume that our own response is a fact for everyone else, or that God is not, in fact, larger than every single one of us. For you see, as I just said, sermons aren't finished products. They're, they're just not even tips for the day. They're testimony as if offered from a witness stand in an ongoing trial. The preacher isn't on trial, unless the preacher thinks he is. Scripture is on trial. And the truth that Scripture reveals to us in the tools of tradition and reason and experience and prayer. As she testifies, the preacher points to the God of Scripture who still speaks. So this pulpit right here is a witness stand. It's not a lawyer's table or a judge's bench. It's not a jury box or a gallery. It's not the podium or of a lecturer or a pundit. Nor is it the station for a reporter outside talking about something that's happening that she or he has nothing to do with. It is the dock from which testimony is offered for others to assess. And God can complete the story if we let God. That's why I love pulpits so much and will always use one because it is a witness stand. That's also why I believe it's good to have different voices and different styles in the pulpit. And why I believe that sermons should be bound to Scripture, even if there are different ways that sermons treat Scripture. And that's why you, as worshipers, have a role to play, too. So how do we let God complete the work? And what is your role? Well, let me try this as kind of a summary of this whole thing. We have inherited a tradition that believes that one of the ways God's people become God's people is by hearing sacred scripture read and interpreted as they gather. We've also inherited a tradition that says what Mike described last month, that scripture, creation, and the church echo God's message of salvation and liberation. And that message doesn't come naturally. It must be told, even proclaimed from a rooftop, if that's what it takes. And 
we've inherited a tradition that brings those two strands, interpretation and proclamation, together in preaching. Never the first word and never the last. Healed and perfected by God in the air between words spoken and words heard. Humble before the task, hopefully. Urgent for decision and committed to the good news of Christ. So here's your role. Here's your role in bringing all of this together. That first tradition that we inherit, it actually presumes that you care about Scripture. So get a little interested in Scripture, if you can. I know many of you are. Let yourself even fall in love with it, if you will. At least get puzzled by it, argue with it, challenge it, let it change you a little, and come to worship hungry to know more and ready to do a little work and be open. That'll help you. And that second tradition that we've inherited, it it asks you to want a word that does more than entertain or confirm you in your beliefs or simply reassure, as good as those things can be now and then. It asks you to want God's word like that woman Jesus praises who looks everywhere to find her lost coin and rejoices when she does. This word asks you to want God for others too. And so to remember that preaching is also for your neighbor. And that it's always about God before it's about any of us. Get in touch with your questions, your pain, your wonder as you come to worship. Get hungry, get eager, get ready to hear, and be willing, as I second, said a second ago, to do a little work yourself. And so I encourage you, as you do this, to pray. Pray when you walk in to the sanctuary or log on to the computer that God might open your heart to what God would teach you today. Pray that God might touch others with what the Spirit would teach them. And so help us all remember that it's not about just us, it's about all of us. And so pray that God might touch the preacher too. For she or he stands in the same need of grace and love as you. And so pray that God might mend broken words, complete stammering and unfinished sentences, and tune distracted ears. For with prayers like that, we all preach. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Amen.